Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 376. This program is dedicated in merit of Baruch Binyamin Ben Menucha Leina, Miriam Baschayasar Altes, and Yekasil Ben Leir Rochel, and Rochel Basliba Farkash. It's dedicated by Pinchas Tadras Ben Miriam and Sarah Bas Rochel Altes. If you're interested in dedicating a program or a series of programs, please go to chsidisapplied.com where you can easily do that as well as access all the resources of previous 375 episodes that cover really a wide spectrum of questions. You can also submit your question there completely anonymously in a forum and uh, everything is allowed, no taboo. And in addition, other resources of learning chassidus, including the contest, the submissions, both essays and creative submissions, applying chassidus to a challenge or issue in life. Okay, so right middle of uh, the month of Cheshvan, coming to the closer, closer, closer to the end of the month. So this week on Tuesday will be Chav Cheshvan, and it's also the week of Parshas Chayis Sarim. So we're going to talk about both these things, as is our custom to begin, applying these important dates or times to our lives. Because Teda is Meloshen Hera. Teda means Hera. The most repeated phrase by the Rebbe in all his Fabrengans is Teda Meloshen Hera. The word directive, Hera Bachayim, a guide to life, a blueprint for life. You can say Teda is the life's operator's manual. The blueprint that God used, that wrote and God that God wrote and used to create existence, including ourselves. So, what better place to look to when you want to have an answer to what makes us tick, and how we can improve our lives, and how we can deal with a challenge? Chsidis is pinimiyasatayr. So, in addition to the lessons you can learn in general from any verse, but pinimiyasatayr covers the pinimiyas, both the pinimiyas of the person's soul, the nishmosa daraisa, and the pinimiyas of understanding the cosmos and the internal forces that make the entire universe tick. So Primi Satera teaches us that and how to build that relationship with God. And once the Rizal said, uh, was said that the time has come to reveal this inner wisdom and the Baal Shem Tov began and hearing from, the, from Mashiach when will Mashiach arrive? When these wellsprings will spread outward. That became the motto, that became the theme, the driving force of all the Rabbeim. And generation after generation, the Magid, the Alter Rebbe, all the way to our seventh generation from the Alter Rebbe, the Rebbe, taking Chassidus and spreading it wherever we can. And it doesn't just mean spreading it quantitatively, but also qualitatively that it should permeate. Tanya is built on that verse, that it should be personal and relevant and something that gives us the vitality and the dynamic energy to not just do things mechanically and serve God mechanically or robotically, but to do it with an inner soul and passion and, and, and joy. So that essentially states the purpose and mission statement of I Life Chassidus Applied. And let's take it back now. Since Chav Cheshvan is coming right up, let's begin with that. Chav Cheshvan is the birthday. This is the 161st birthday of the Rebbe Rasha, born in Tofresh Chav Aleph, which would correspond to, um, to, to so Tofresh Pei Beis, Tofshin Pei Beis, I should say, is uh, 161 years. So he was born then. Cheshvan would have still been the year 1860. So we are now in 2021, it's 161 years. When the Friedrich Rebbe Rashab was born, uh, the Tzemach Tzedek was still, was still here. Begashmis in this world, and he's still here, Beruchnis, but Begashmis, he was the Rebbe, till Tafresh Chavov was the Istalkus of the, Rebbe Rashab, the Tzemach Tzedek. And he said about the Rebbe Rashab, born Kisra, in the month uh, that uh, the year was Kisra Tafresh Chavalov. And the Kisrei law is the supernal crown, which is, and Chov Cheshvin Rosh is also Rosh Keser. 
And indeed, you see that a central theme in the Rebbe Rashab Chassidus, especially the classic magnum opus of Ayin Beis begins, B'Shor Shigidimu, Yisrael Nasa L'Nishma, that they were to bound for them, Ksarim, Shleish Ksarim, three crowns. And then the Rebbe Rashab uses the word crown, Keser, which is a fundamental level in Kabbalah and Chassidus, to explain the interface between God and existence, being Keser, the Rotzen Hashem, the first step is Rotzen. And that indeed is the central theme throughout all the, the, the long discourse that goes 144 Maimodim and then a third volume that he did not deliver but only wrote. But in general, the Rebbe Rashab, as we know, Rambam of Chassidus he was called, because what he did was took all the sugis, all the themes and ideas of Chassidus and put them together in an organized manner. You see that in Ayin Beis, you see it in a lesser extent, Samakvav. But Ayin Beis, of course, is far larger and far broader. But nevertheless, even in all the Maimarim, even single Maimarim, not Hamshechem, Hamshechem is a, a series of discourses, this is what the Rebbe Rashab did. He took the chassidus that came before, went deeper into it, analyzing it more, and connecting the different topics so you come away with a far more organized understanding, as the Friedrich Rebbe says, of the entire picture, the entire, you can say, vista and panorama of chassidic thought, and of course with the goal of applying it to Aveda, to our serving God, in our personal lives, both in, the, in our relationship with Hashem, relationship with each other, So that was one of the, that was a major contribution of the Rebbe Rashab, Keser, as hinted to in his name. You also know the famous story that when he was around five years old, it had to be around then because, as I said, that Samach Tzadik passed away in Tofresh Chovov on Yud Gimel, on Yud, on Yud Gimel Nissen. So the, the, the Rebbe Rashab went in as a child for a bracha for his birthday in Chav Cheshvin. That was the week that year, it was Pasha Vayera. As he entered Tzitzamach Tzadik, he began to cry. It's a story repeated by the Rebbe so many times, almost every year when he spoke Chav Cheshvin. And he told the story. Many times Chav Cheshvin was Shabbos Pasha Vayera. And Tzitzamach Tzadik asked the Rebbe Rashab, why are you crying? He said he just learned that the Ebeshta appeared, that Ebeshta appeared to Avramavinu. He's crying, why doesn't Ebeshta appear to me? Just that alone, the Rebbe learned lessons upon lessons of how each of us have to cry and feel, even though the Rebbe Rashab, of course, was the Rebbe Rashab and would become Butzim, Butzim, Akathi, Adia, which was just a little taste of what he would become, a great Rebbe. But all of us have to learn the lesson since it was told to us that there's a time that we have to cry, not because we're in pain and not because we need something, but the mere fact that God is not revealed. God is the ultimate truth, and you don't see it, you don't experience it. Tzemach Tzadik responded to the Rebbe Rashab, and there's a second gist of Anaid at Tzadik, when a Jew, when a Jew at Tzadik, second version, chooses to circumcise himself at age 99, he's worth that God reveal himself to him. And this too is a lesson. Obviously, we're not asked to circumcise ourselves at 99. Today, Bris Miller, the mitzvah is at, at eight days. But circumcision also has a deeper spiritual meaning, the idea to remove all blocks in our connection, our covenant with godliness. To remove the block that blocks our hearts from experiencing the divine, which that alone tells you. Once you remove that, then God appears. So the Tzemach Tzedek wasn't just he's worthy because he, 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 was, he was allowed, allowed himself to do a mitzvah that was so painful at age 99. But it was actually the very thing that he did was that no matter how much he had achieved in his life, he still felt and understood and appreciated the mitzvah of removing Arulas Levavchem, relative to Avram, of course, on that level, which opens the door of godly revelation. You think about it, it means that God reveals himself. Not, it's not some type of magic thing. It's all cause and effect. Kotzka Rebbe, they once asked him, where is Hashem? He says, wherever you let him in. In other words, it's there. A reality of godliness is here all the time, no matter what. The question is whether we see it, whether we experience it. So we have to let him in. How do you do that? You get rid of any blocks. It's like anything. There's something really powerful in your presence but your eyes are closed, or your ears are, are, are sealed, or your heart is uh, shut, you're not going to experience it. So we learn Chassidus. Chassidus makes us aware. Ah, 
This is what godliness is like. And then suddenly you look around and it's, all, it's everywhere. Because everything in existence is really godliness just manifesting itself in a garment called a tree, a bird, a street, a sky, the earth, the work we do, the people we know, including ourselves. But it's all Dvar Hashem, the word of God, God's energy, divine energy that is constantly being renewed. Now we don't see it, but we can become aware of it. And for that we have to remove the blocks and we have to be taught, we have to learn and sensitize ourselves. Because when you live in a material world, we, are, we focus on the here and now, on the, on the instant gratification, the superficial. However, when you dig a little deeper, you start seeing that there's more that's going on. And today, it's not, such a, not something so difficult. All of technology is also based on that. We don't see you hold a mobile phone or you use any other technology. You don't see all the forces that allow you to communicate with anyone, anywhere, access any information, press of a button, visually, audio, whatever it is. And you think, what are the forces behind the scenes? They too are invisible, but you see its effect. Now, of course, technology, it's easier to relate to, but the invisible forces are still there. But imagine going one step deeper beyond the molecules and the atoms and the subatomic particles and the quantum mechanics, that there's a spiritual energy behind it all. And that too is not that difficult to understand. Just look at yourself. You're not just a body. You're not just a, mach- a, a physical machine. You breathe. Your heart is beating. Your mind is working. You're a personality. You're communicating with others. So there's soulful energies and soulful things at work all the time that define who you are. The body is your container, your vehicle, if you wish. So the more we understand that, the more we appreciate it, the more we can connect to the godliness within. So God appears if we remove those blocks and we allow that awareness to take our hold of ourselves, which was, of course, the whole commitment of the Rebbe Rashab in his life was to do exactly that, to te- like all the Rabbeim, to teach Chassidus, to make it something that becomes understandable even to the Seichel of the Nefesh Abamis, that even the animal soul can understand it and enjoy it indeed, enjoy it, and understanding what makes you work, what makes you tick, your internal faculties, your emotional ones, your cognitive ones, your conscious, your superconscious. I mean, these things, what more, what more, what's richer and more enjoyable than to learn who you are, your inner identity, and then finding the ways to express that inner identity in your outer self, which is, of course, what Teirah Mitzvah is all about. These are the, the tools, the instruments, the divine tools and instruments given to us to actualize our great soul's potential. And this, in essence, is all of Chassidus. The Rebbe Rashab, as I have said, mentioned earlier, organized it and analyzed it in depth to give us a profound sense. There's a Sikh in Shalom just always strikes me. The Rebbe Rashab is speaking about very profound ideas in Chassidus. Yichud, different ways we unite with the divine from the bottom up, from the top down. And it was very clearly very profound ideas. And at the end, you could see that the Rebbe Rashab senses the depth that he was sharing. And uh, I assume in order to answer the question, like why we speak about these very deep things, the Rebbe Rashab says, we speak about these things because, he doesn't say this, but even if you don't understand it, as you know, when you know whom you're dealing with, you have a different respect. So even if you don't understand every level before the symptom and after the symptom, but the mere fact, the mere fact that you see, you see the scope, you see the grandeur, the majesty of the divine, the staklobit, you cutted the malka, to look into the beauty of the king, you see that, that alone elevates you to a place. You have a different derecheretz. When you learn the Rebbe Rashaz Mamorim, that's what happens. Yes, it's tremendous, deep material that stimulates the mind, takes you on a journey into places that are completely beyond our usual pedestrian day-to-day life. But in addition, it just elevates you to a place and you realize what reality really is like. When you don't know all of that, you can convince yourself that your small little world, your myopic world, is the reality, and that's it. 
When you learn this, it elevates you and realizes it's like going up on top of the t- highest mountain. Ah, that's the horizon. It's not what you see when you're in the valley or on a plateau or even on lower levels of the mountain. On top of the mountain, you suddenly see, wow, the vastness. It's not just the vastness and quantity, it's also the vastness and quality, which of course elevates you. So then you start realizing how petty and small so many other things may be. The Alter Rebbe once said, the Chassidus teaches us how small we are and how great we can become. There's another expression that he teaches us the greatness of every small thing and the smallness of every great thing. Different meanings and different phrases, but they all address understanding and coming to greater insight, both about ourselves and about others. And imagine when you learn about that potential within you and within others, what that does. Then it causes you to want and to yearn and long to reach these greater heights, which is called in Chassidus, Av, Avas Hashem, Kedush Be'esh, like a burning fire, and the different levels of love as longing and reaching and yearning and pining to connect with something, the Dovka, to connect with something greater than ourselves, to connect to God, that is the ultimate reality beyond us all. So that's a short overview of Chav Cheshven, one at least among others. So what is its significance to our lives today? It's very clear. All these ideas are not just what were taught in the, over the years of the Rebbe Rashab's leadership from Tafresh Mem Gimel after his father, the Rebbe Marash, passed away, till Tafresh Pei, which would be Tafresh, which would be the when he's the stalkus of the Rebbe Rashab and Beis Nissen. But these ideas live on. I remember Tafresh Mem Aleph and the Rebbe spoke Chof Cheshvan. It was an unbelievable sikh. It's on recording. You can hear it. He says, why would we care about something that happened in a shtetl in somewhere in a small town in Russia when we're living now in the year 1981 in Brooklyn, New York, in a big city? And the Rebbe said, close your eyes and be misbein to contemplate about the Rebbe Rashab and his ideas that he taught. And we can live exactly as it was then today. In other words, the relevance is lives on in the fullest sense of the word. Because this isn't just some historical story. This is about the teachings of Chassidus, the teachings of the Rebbe Rashab, the, the Avedov of the Rebbe Rashab, the directives, the entire life of, that he lived was all about being saturated with higher presence, with godliness. And from when he was a child, when he cried for it throughout his whole life. And that's something that's a tremendous living example right here today and its role in our lives of learning Chassidus and living with it. The Rebbe Rashab also established Hemchit Mimim, in Tafresh Nun Zayin. And that was the year 1897. And the Temchit became the training ground of the, of the Talmidim, Atmimim, that would become the, essentially the army that we see today is a product of Temchit And that's exactly what the Rebbe Rashab intended. He said, Kola David in his famous Sicha, explaining the purpose of the yeshiva and the, and the students that come out of it to not just be Tamid Chacham and scholars and Nigla and Primisatel, but also to be soldiers, to be people who are pioneers and leaders and go out there and in many ways battle the darkness of Golis of this world. Battle not with weapons, but with light and with spirit, with Ruach. Leibikeichi, not, not, with, not with power and not with ammunition, but with Ruach, with spirit, the spirituality of Teir, the spirituality of Yiddishkeit, and that's exactly what continued the Friedrich Rebbe's time, and the Rebbe took, to, took it to another level completely. You see today the Shluchim and Chassidim spread all over the world, doing exactly that. All in Temchit Mim, the Rebbe Rashab recognized the need for that. So in that context, we know that Rebbe Rashab was not a simple decision for him to establish the yeshiva, because... His father, the Rebbe Marash, and some Tzedek before him, and the Rebbe Mitla Rebbe, the Alta Rebbe, did not establish a yeshiva. So if the Rebbe Rashab says, that's a gekaik, it's a gevalgert, for years, 15 years, it says, 20 years, I think 15 years, that he was valgenzich, which means he was, valgen is a hard word to, 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 uh, to translate. It means to roam by the, by the oil, to, because he was struggling with whether to open a yeshiva, but he did. Which means, if he made, after all this back and forth, he realized that all the Rabbeim would have total, totally agreed and would have done exactly the same thing. But he had to go through the process to be able to come to that. So that leads to a question that someone asked. Um, Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Thanks so much for everything you do. Coming off recently, this is a question written 
around Yud Beis Tammuz, which is the Geula of the son of the Rebbe Rashab, the Friedrich Rebbe, but I thought it's relevant here as well. I came across a Sikha from the previous Rebbe where he tells over an amazing story from his interrogation. The interrogation asked the Rebbe as to his age, Friedrich Rebbe, to which the Rebbe responded over 150 years old. If I'm not mistaken, the Rebbe was referring to the year since the Alter Rebbe's founding of Chabad Hasidism, which was personified by the Rebbe. So his age included all the Rebbe's before him. I wanted to share this with you because I've heard you repeatedly talk about how the Rebbeim were not individuals, but rather completely transparent beings for Chassidus, the Teir and Hashem. I thought the story also brought out such a point. was curious if you ever heard the story before and perhaps wanted to share on my life. Thanks for everything you do. The source for this is Sichus Yud Beis Tamas, Sichus Kedesh, Tav Shin Yud Ches, page 261. So yes, I heard the Sichus from that place, and I think the Friedrich Rebbe also says it, maybe, I don't know if in his diary, but maybe in the Kutzet Deburim. Yes, it does bring out the point, like the Rebbe said in uh, Yud Kislev Shabbos Vayetze, Tav Shin Yud Aleph. So he said he was asked why he wrote on the Sharblat, on the cover page of all the Svarim of the Rabbeim, it says on top, the chain of light, whether it's a Maimonim of the Alter Rebbe or the Mitle Rebbe, all the Rabbeim, so he was asked, the Rebbe said, why doesn't it say, a Rebbe is a Moir, he's a source of light, not just light, not just like sunlight, but the source of light, Moir. And the Rebbe answered, in a Moir, there's no Ishtalshlis, there's no uh, gradation of levels. All the Rabbeim are one as a Moir. There's one Moshe Rabbeim. In each generation. When you talk about the air they give off, each one has their particular air. We know the Alter Rebbe is like Chochmah, Mitle Rebbe like Bina. Obviously they're all, all inclusive, but primarily. So the idea that uh, Friedrich Rebbe wasn't just saying 150 years, because it is one extension and one flow. And one entity. So when the Rebbe Rashab established Emchit Mimim, it was in that spirit. The idea of one, that the, all the Rabbeim were part of the process. That's why Temchit Mimim, the yeshiva that the Rebbe Rashab established, is really a yeshiva that the Rabbeim established. But of course, we attribute it to the Miyasid, is the Rebbe Rashab and the Menahel, the, who, who ran the yeshiva. It was the Friedrich Rebbe, and then he became, a, it continued, and then it continues till this very day. Okay. Another question someone asked, in honor of is there a unique story about the Rebbe Rashab commenting to a comment that someone said to him that with his yeshiva, he said that Tmimim 50 years back regarding the lifestyle they were being set out on based on what they are learning. In other words, he was bringing back Siddhis like 50 years back in its purity, its integrity. I'm assuming that's what you mean. The Rebbe Rashab took pride in that and responded, no, 100 years. Is that real or somewhat accurate story? Thanks. I vaguely remember it. This question just came in because it's Chav Chesh and I wanted to read it. I vaguely remember something. Honestly, I did not have time to look it up. But I wanted to put it out there. It's a nice uh, vort, and I'll try to explain it a bit in a moment. But if anybody does have more information of a source for this, please share it with me. L'teel Sarabim for the benefit of everybody, and I'll share it on this program. Well, that was uh, the idea of Tem Chetmim, as the Rebbe Rashab lays out in Kuntus Eitzachayim, which is a Kuntus he gave out to explain the Matorah, the purpose of Agudasenu, of our uh, new entity, a new communal effort, which is the Yeshiva. Our new Aguda is like a bond being bound together. That he does say that, number one, it's to bring not just another Yeshiva to learn, because there were many good Yeshivas, but to also be saturated with Yiddish Shemayim, with Primis Ateira and Ava Viyira. And as I mentioned before, when Kol Yetzel Muhammad's Beis David, to go out and actually fight the battles against the darkness and the corruption and the assimilation of the generations that he describes there. Kharfu Ivech Hashem, Kharfu Ikvus Meshichecha. As he discusses it at length in the Sicha of Kol Yetzel and Muhammad's Beis David, Tafresh Samach Aleph, printed at the back of Sefer HaSichus Tafshim Beis. You want to see the full sikha. The Rebbe would cite it very often in regard to Chav Cheshvan, regarding to Temchet Mimim. Now, but obviously there's more, more goals in a yeshiva, especially a yeshiva like Temchet Mimim. Yes, the Rebbe Rashab wanted to create an oasis where you experience chassidus. Remember, till then, Talmidim, 
there was no Chabad yeshiva officially. They went to different yeshivas in different places, which were excellent yeshivas. But he wanted to create an environment that would somewhat give a taste of what Chassidim were like in the time of the Rebbe Marash, time of the Samach Tzedek, a hundred years from Tafresh and Zion, it's Tav Kufn and Zion. It's right in the beginnings of the Altar Rebbe's, uh, when Tanya was uh, being prepared, it was right before Yutas Kislev. I mean, this was the time Tav Kufn and Zion was, uh, when Tanya was printed, and, uh, and all that beginning, so it could be that's what he's referring to, to like recapture that essence. But obviously, without seeing the source, I don't want to say this definitively to see exactly what the Rebbe Rasha meant. So if does, anyone doesn't know a source for the story, please share it with me. And easy to do, just go to myxidasupply.com. You can just put it in the forum there. You can email it to us at meaningfullife.com and uh, I'll be happy to share it with everybody. Okay. Another question connected to last week's passion. <laughs> And also somewhat this week, because we talk about Chaya Sada, which we're going to discuss in a moment. How do we reconcile that the Friedrich Rebbe said that we should never expel a student from Tempelchim because the yeshiva has the responsibility for the student's neshama soul? How do we reconcile that with the story of Sarah kicking out Yishmael because she was afraid he would be a bad influence on Yitzchak? So the answer is quite obvious. First of all, as Tempelchim uh, and the uh, the oil of Avram are not necessarily exactly the same uh, entity. Even though Tempchat Mimim tries his best to emulate that tent, but Tempchat Mimim is a yeshiva that was meant to bring in all kinds of students and to, and, and to elevate them and to refine them. Avram did the same. He brought everybody in. Avram Anoshim, But they didn't come to live there in uh, an Avram's tent. And, and that's number one. Number two, Ishmael was a son of Avram Avinu. He was living there permanently, son of Hagar and Avram. And finally, Ishmael was not just a wayward individual. He had very powerful influence and powerful approach. Yitzchak was a ilat mimo, and Sarah was protecting so how do we learn from, what lesson do we learn from that? Comes to the yeshiva, this was the shit and never to throw anyone out. And it's a general question, what happens if a person is really creating problems, what they call a bad apple, and affecting everyone else? Even there, as much as possible, is always an attempt to make sure that the, to do something with the bacher, the student, and, and to try to bring him closer. And if in any way he was bad influence, there were different measures tried, there were, of course, instances and I, in yeshiva, when even I was in yeshiva, I don't know if it was controversial or not, that some boys and some students were asked to leave. How is that consistent with the Friedrich Rebbe statement? Is it absolute? Were there exceptions? So I don't want to go into all the details of that because I'm not aware of all the circumstances that the Friedrich Rebbe never decided that someone was not appropriate. But the general approach, the general spirit is definitely correct. So what do we learn from Sarah and Yishmael then? So the answer is, as I said, Yishmael wasn't just another individual, not just another student in yeshiva. Yishmael was a force that would become later the father and the progenitor and ancestor of the entire Arab Muslim world. Yishmael had uh, all kinds of things he was involved in that absolutely had a very bad impact on, could have had a very bad impact on Yitzchak. Sarah, as a mother, recognized that, and she decided the time has come. But you have to also remember, Yishmael was not a baby. And he had a mother. He wasn't just sent out into the street. So there's a lot to be said about Yishmael. Had she not sent him away, what would have happened? How would have impacted what was happening there? Remember also that it would be Yitzchak who would inherit Avram's legacy in bringing God to the world. So though Yishmael, Yishmael was a depraved, and did his thing, but he had gone away from that legacy. And it was corrupting the possibility to actually perpetuate the very thing that why Avram was here on this earth. Now, Avram himself was not necessarily so sensitive to that, meaning he felt that Yishmael could be brought closer, and that's why he said, um, But nevertheless, Avram was told to listen to Sarah. I should correct myself. To say he wasn't that sensitive, meant to say he didn't, wasn't aware as much as Sarah was 
that um, about the effect of Yishmol on, on Yitzchak. I mean, you find similarly that how Rivka worked together with Yaakov to get the brachas from Yitzchak. Again, a mother and a child. Again, there, it was a child, uh, an actual child of both Yitzchak and Rivka, Esau. So when you're talking about biblical figures, things take on a whole different proportion. We have to learn our lessons. There are times to have the discipline, but it has a lot more significance than just taking someone and throwing them out of the yeshiva-like. It's not exactly the same type of thing. And that's why it's case by case. We have to look at everything in this context. Okay. Finally, I want to say this, that when, when the Hashem is telling Avram to listen to Sarah, so sending away Yishmol was for his benefit as well. This wasn't just rejecting him. We see in this week's Pasha, we're going to read about it, we're going to talk about it now, that after Rivka passes away, Yitzchak gets married, Avram goes back to Keturah. And in many opinions, Keturah was Hagar. You know, Yishmol did Shuvah at the end. So Yishmol remains Avram's child. This was not like a rejection where you're no longer my child. It was a stage of development, and now it was appropriate Yishmol to go move on to where he had to do, just like children leave home in general. And there was also obviously due to effects he was having. Just wanted to throw that into the picture as well. Okay. So now that we're talking about that, let's move to Chayasar. Who was Keturah? Wasn't she Hagar and was already married to Avram? Did Avram have to marry her again because she changed her name? If one day our wives decide to change their name, does that disqualify the Ksuba and we have to marry them again? No. The answer to the last question is no. Changing a name does not require a new ksuba. It may require correcting a ksuba or adding a name, but not remarrying a person. That's the key point to remember. In this case, it says, so the different opinions about Keturah, those that hold that it's Hagar, do believe that after Avram sent them away, he gave her a get, that she should be able to remarry and go move on with her life. She didn't. She remained loyal, it says in Midrashim. One of the reasons she's called Keturah. Keturah means from the word Keturah, like pure. And bound, also from the word bound, that she was bound to Avram, from the word Kesher. So that's according to that opinion, that he took Hagar back. Why? And you see he waited after Rivka, I'm sorry, Sarah passed away. And he also waited till after Yitzchak was married. The Gemara learns from this that the first thing is you have to marry for your children before you remarry, meaning take care of your children, even though there are obviously many exceptions. People today, we know, remarry before their children are married. But that's a, that's a discussion, but that's part of it in this context. And that's the opinion. And he had more children with her, six children. And then he says he sent them off to the east. Now, the basic reason why this happened is because Avram was spreading godliness. And though Sada, his beloved Sada, was now longer, no longer there, Avram felt the responsibility to have children who would continue to spread the monotheism and godliness everywhere in the world. As we see, he sent his children off to the east. So Rashid says, with Shemus, some say Shemus talk of the negative Shemus, but nevertheless, it's Shemus. And that's why they say in the east you have today different schools of thought and disciplines and spiritual thought, uh, spiritual, um, spiritual movements that are based on Brahmin and Avram that things that Avram taught, and you have a lot of similarities you find between Jewish mysticism and those schools of mysticism. Regardless, in this case, that would be one narrative. There are other opinions that Keturah was someone else, not, not Hagar. Uh, there's even a medrash that says, a Yalkut that says that, that Avram married two other wives. And one was called Keturah, and one was another. So he had a daughter, Sarah, was a daughter from, she came from the house of Shem. The Hagar was from the house of Cham, and there was another wife that he had from the house of Yophis. So basically, he married from all the three branches of Noyach's children. That's just another matter that's interesting. But regardless, regardless of the opinions, Keturah definitely says at the end of Pasha Chayasara, and that's the, the brief story about it. But it's interesting that Hagar be called Keturah. Keturah is an element of, of purity, and also, as I said, being bound and committed. Okay, another question. Do we have free choice or is everything predetermined? We are told that Avram was supposed to live until 180, 180, but Hashem took him away five years early so he wouldn't be pained by seeing Esau and his evil ways. That sounds like determinism. 
If there was free choice, perhaps Esav would have had the free choice to do tshuva and bring joy to Avram in his last five years, or perhaps Avram would have had an extra five years to try to influence his grandson Esav with good character traits. Well, the question of predeterminism and free will is an independent and self-standing topic. Briefly, yes, everything is predetermined except the will, the choice, free will about right and wrong, moral choices. The Rambam says it's a foundation in Torah. It's the basis of everything in life, that we're not puppets and we're not robots, and it's not predetermined. It's a longer discussion, even if you say God knows what will be, but his knowledge doesn't affect our behavior. So I'm not sure why you're associating Davka with Avram. The fact that, that Esau made a choice, yes, you can say he made a choice, and went off the Tarbusrah, and because the Hashem didn't want Avram to see it, he took five years from him. Didn't want to pain him. So the choice was Esau. See, did he have a choice? Of course he had a choice. I don't see the problem saying he had a choice, and does the choice have consequences? Yes. When a person makes a choice, there are consequences. One of them was that, like Yitzchok, who lived 180, Avram was supposed to, and he didn't. Now, one of the consequences of Esau's behavior. Now, why, what, was, what did you want to expect Hashem to do? To tell Esau, don't, do don't have free will. If it was predeterminism, God could have not allowed Esau to sin, but to go off on his own, uh, wander off wherever he went, and Avram should live longer. But the goal was to have free will. So I'm not so clear how that ultimately affects the question of determinism of free will. But anyway, thank you for the question. And we'll go to another one now. Being that we're talking about this topic of Keturah and Hagar and Avram, remember Avram is Av Hamoin Goyim. Also, as we talked, we talked about in the previous chapters, Av Hamoin Goyim. And as Av Hamoin Goyim, he was the father of all nations. As we mentioned many times, Avram, of course, had Yitzchak, was the father and ancestor of the Jewish people. Yishmael would become the father and ancestor of the Arab Muslim world, later become Muslim. And his grandson, Esau, Rashi, at the end of Ayishlach, says, Magdiel, a grandchild from the Alufi Esau, Zuremi, Rome. So Rome, the Western world, which would later become the Christian world. Edem, Malchus Edem, Golos Edem, is Esau. So you see how Avram affected the entire world. Now we also know that uh, Yaakov, of course, a grandson of Avram, had the Yudbe Shvatim. Yudbe Shvatim are the scions, the different branches that really encompassed the entire Jewish people. And they were united until the time of Yeravim ben Nevot, after Shlema Melech, where they split into Malchus Yisrael and Malchus Yehuda. Yehuda and Binyamin, and part of Menashe, part of Menashe, part of Ephraim, and then the rest of the, what we call the ten tribes, the Asaras Ashvatim. They had different kings and different destinies. Sancherev of Assyria would destroy the kingdom of Israel, of Israel, and scatter them. And a little while later, same thing Nebuchadnezzar did with Malchus Yehuda, where Mbesa Migdash was in their, in their territory. So there's this mysterious story of the ten lost tribes that after Sancherev and Syria, Ashur, spread them out, were called lost. So the question is being asked here, it has been, um, what is the story? Were they lost? Will they return? What do we know about these ten tribes? So it could be discussed any time, but I thought maybe appropriate as we are talking about Avram and, the, and what will come some, to Yitzchak and then Yaakov and the Shvatim. In addition, it, it's, some people wrote the question, um, what should be our attitude to different claims about a people being from the ten lost tribes as in the recent news about Hispaniola and the Igbo of Nigeria. I'll read the questions. It has been claimed that some groups of people on the island of Hispaniola, which host the countries of the Dominican Republic and Haiti, are Jews from the Lost Tribes. A very common surname in the Dominican Republic is Nunes, which means son of Nun, perhaps indicating a relationship from the family of Joshua, Yeshua ben Nun. This past week, 
well, it wasn't this past week because this is written a while back. A while back, the president of Haiti, Jovenel Moza, was assassinated. Is there an obscure message that says a king of one of the lost tribes will be assassinated the time shortly before Mashiach comes? Another person writes, a while back, a documentary film crew that went to Nigeria to interview the Igbo people who claimed, who claimed to be from the lost tribes were arrested by Nigerian authorities, probably for political reasons. It makes me think, whatever happened to the lost tribes? How did they get lost? Does a renewed interest in finding them allude to the imminent arrival of Mashiach? Well, I'm very glad to see people connecting everything to Mashiach. That already is good. Because it means that looking, thinking about Mashiach, looking at events and seeing how it's all part of a bigger story. Regarding the ten tribes, is really a longer discussion. At least I'll lay out some of the basic things. So it is shrouded in mystery because there are different opinions in the Gemara and Midrashim. And we have, of course, different verses that are alluded to in the Tanakh. In Tanakh. But not a lot has been written about it. Um, regarding, first of all, let's start with Tanakh. In Tanakh itself, the exile by, the, by Melachash, by the Assyrians, is only a few passages in Melochim and in Divra Yomim, where it talks about where they were sent. Cities like Hala, Habor, Hara, the Gazan River, cities of Medea, the Gemara talks about different opinions where these places they are. Some say Iraq, Iran, and modern-day Syria, or modern-day of all, Iraq, Iran, and Syria. But in the opinions themselves, there are those that say they became completely assimilated and intermarried and therefore lost. Some even say lost forever. As a matter of fact, in Gemara, there's a Machlekes, and in Mishnah, actually, in Sanhedrin, that talk about whether the Shvaritim will come back. Rabbi Akiva says they will not return. Rabbi Lezer says that just like the day follow, is followed by darkness, the light later returns, so too they, the Shvaritim, will ultimately, God will ultimately take them out of darkness, they will return when Mashiach comes. And then the Gemara, there's a third opinion of Rabbi Shim ben Yehuda, who says, if their deeds are the ones, like the ones when they were exiled, they will not return. But otherwise, if their deeds basically are improved, they will return. So obviously there's a long discussion. So how could anyone say that they completely won't return according to some of the opinions? So there are opinions that say that from certain places they won't return because they already were assimilated and lost. Other places they will return. So it's not a surprise that you'll find throughout history, Eldad Hadoni, for example, is a whole story, how he said he traveled different places and he, and he found, tri- found people who claimed that they were from the tribes. And it was then confirmed, he was, he was in the ninth century by the, the Ga'inim, the Gaon of that generation, when he, a letter was written to him. So we see the concept, why wouldn't it exist? They were ten tribes, and it's very possible that some of their traditions were maintained, and they can be in many different places. The problem is halachically to establish that those are Jews because we don't know what happened. They could have been intermarriage. They could have been also marriage within families, incestuous marriages. So as a result, that's one of the reasons that there were those that held that when they, the Ethiopians, who, some, who claimed that they go back all the way to Shlema Melech and Malka that even if you're to say that's correct, because we don't know everything that happened halachically, just easy, the simplest thing is to be Megayer them. Some saw that as an insult. But in truth is, it's actually the cleanest way halachically, because that way for sure they're Jewish. You don't have to live with a doubt. So there's a lot of technical aspects to this, and also practical ones. Now we do know, when Shiach comes, there'll be the sounding of the great Shefer, and it will draw back, it says, those lost, the word Evdim lost in Eretz Asher mean the land of Assyria, which really means where Assyria sent them off and exiled them. And and those that were exiled in the land of Mitzrayim. Now we know the interpretation Asher and, uh, and Mitzrayim as being uh, the goddess of Mitzrayim of poverty and, and um, oppression and Asher from the word Asher, from prosperity and affluence. 
But technically, the pshat of it means as Asher, they will return. Why? Because at the end of the day, the sparks, the divine sparks that they carry are everywhere. So even in the darkest gullus, they're the sparks. So it makes sense that some will return for sure. At the end of the day, there's no total conclusion and consensus that we know exactly. Some, like I said, it's very possible that some just completely assimilated and others will return. And some are lost in nations where you can't find them any longer. Uh, Maral has a Netzach Yisrael as an interesting explanation of it all where he says that the, it's Eberster's business. In other words, we can't identify who it is. The Eberster, the end of days, Mashiach comes, will identify and return those that he wants to return. So essentially, there's basically no consensus exactly whether we can go out now and identify and say, here, they lost 10 tribes. That's a brief response. Obviously, there's a lot more details to this. If anybody wants more information, just text, just send us in the forum at chassidahsupply.com your email address, and we'll happy to send you some articles with sources and annotations on this topic. Interesting topic. I once heard that uh, the, the Rebetzin, the Chaim Mushke, in the house was having a conversation with some uh, friends, and they were de- strongly debating and discussing this issue of the Ten Tribes which, of course, is very intriguing in general in our uh, history. Okay, so where are we here? So we covered that. I want to say one more thing about Chaya Sada, a classic chassidus uh, applied, why the Pasha is called Chaya Sada, when the whole Pasha, starting from the first Pasha, talk about her, her death and passing. Do you want a Pasha to Sada? She lived in Pasha Vayera, even Lech Lecha, but let's say Vayera. And yet, it's true, it's the first words. But still, the name of a pasha captures the whole, the, whole the, the story of the whole pasha. You start reading, it's like almost, it's like, you know, uh, you have to have truth in advertising. You start reading, yes, Chayasada, Vayir Chayasada, Meyashana, Vesim Shana, Vashavashanim, 127 years she lived and passed away. And then it talks about Avram looking for a burial spot. Then it talks about looking for a shidduch for Yitzchak after Sarah passed away. So it's all post-life. It explains the Rebbe in a beautiful way. That on the contrary, the name Pasha captures what is true enduring life. When a person's walking around and has immediate influence, you don't know whether it will be enduring. It could last only for the amount of time they live on this earth. When you see the events after her life, after her physical, biological life, you see the impact she had, inspiration, that we can talk about earth almost 3,800 years later, then you know it's a true chayisara. She lives on. You know, doctors, scientists, biologists will tell you biological life when the heart stops, when the brain stops, whatever. Teodos says no. Real life is not determined by that. That's the halachic aspect of it, the biological aspect. Real life is determined on long-term impact. The wicked, even in their lifetimes, they're called not alive. Sadikim gambe misosam kruim chayim. Righteous, even in their deaths, they're called alive. Now, obviously, we want a combination of both, and hence tchias amesim. But it puts life into context and perspective. Of course, for us, uh, what, are we, what kind of life are we living? A life that will be enduring, where the values, the legacy, the divine aspect of it, the Teda Mitzvah, that lives far beyond our, like Yichud Zen every mitzvah releases an eternal energy that forever changes the world and is not subject to mortality and all the limitations of, of, the, of uh, the laws of nature as it affects the physical world. Okay. There were a bunch of questions on Vayera, but I, let me go to... Um, Follow up Vayera, let's see if I'll be able to fit it in. I'm not sure. What I would like to do is go to here, this one. What can I do to improve my relationship with my parents? You know, these pastors all talk about parents and children. Interesting stories, so it seems fitting. Shalom, Shalom, Rabbi. I'm struggling with honoring my parents. I need help keeping them at a distance because I get angry after interacting with them as of recently. I don't want them in my life for, ta- for, ta- for the time being until I deal with my anger in therapy. 
but I don't want to cause them pain by withholding from them, withholding them from seeing their granddaughter. My mother's convinced I never loved her and only tolerated her my whole life. And my father is mamish oblivious to everything. I'm tired of my anger being invalidated, my questions deflected, my attempts to communicate silenced. Bottom line, I want to do the right thing and I want to be more present at home. I want my, ang- the ang- my, my anger with my parents to be healed. My wife is so frustrated with this topic. I totally understand why she feels this way because this topic makes up, takes up too much space in our marriage. I need guidance. How do I limit my communication with my parents and manage to keep my wife happy and allow them to see their granddaughter? Okay. As it is with any instance like this, there are many details that are not, you do not share that I don't want to speculate about. You know, how, ba- how far back does this go? Is your childhood was also this way? Is it due to any events that happened, any traumas? These are important questions because we have to identify, is it just you have a short fuse? Maybe you're spoiled, or maybe your parents are just maybe uh, not so functional. But how, how, how do I know? And I'm not going to guess. These are all relevant. Regardless, Kabbalah Savichavas Emecha is a mitzvah no matter what. Now, obviously, if a parent is hurting a child directly, stabbing them, God forbid, you know, things that there's a, there's, there's a, you don't have to go in harm's way and get out of the line of fire. But barring that, you have to do everything possible to honor your parents. Now, if your parents are disturbing your married life, marriage life, that's also something to be addressed with boundaries. So the first suggestion I would make is I don't know if you have a mashpia that you talk to. I see you say you're going to therapy. But definitely have a mashpia who understands, can look at it objectively and advise. Maybe there's some things you need to do. Maybe you need to some, have some discipline with your anger. You know how to suppress it a bit. Nothing wrong with going to your parents once in a while for a meal, bring your granddaughter. They should see their granddaughter. Again, unless there's a reason that I can't identify here. Just your anger, I don't know where it's coming from. Is it legitimate? And even if it is, we're, we're adults. You control anger. You know, it doesn't say you have to spend all day and all night with your parents. You can go there, nice visit, control yourself, and then move on. So I'm not sure why that practical approach that I just mentioned is not doable. Does that mean you're healed from all your feelings? No, so then you work on it. You go to therapy, you go to a mashpia. So my practical advice would be is to review this whole story exactly. See if there's a way to simply be able to visit your parents with your granddaughter. Unless you said you don't suggest that they're abusive to your granddaughter, that they're in any way a destructive influence. They can babysit at times. There's many ways that they can enjoy your, your daughter, their granddaughter, without necessarily creating any confrontation. And even with yourself. Maybe you should speak to your wife about it. Maybe she could be a voice of reason. It doesn't sound like that she's got the problem. It sounds like you have the problem. Now, sometimes that is. She's not the daughter. You're the son. So sometimes that could be an issue. But being that she may not have a problem with them, maybe you should follow her lead, like Avram listened to Sarah. So these are some of my thoughts when I read this. But the bottom line is, you need someone who can understand the whole situation and then advise properly. Completely another, since we're also, this is parents. Now we're talking about Shaduchim. So another question someone wrote, how does one stay positive that Hashem is a bashet for them after a long dating process? Staying positive in the dating process. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you for always sharing inspiring words that always speak to me. I'm sure you may have previously addressed this question, however, I'd still like to ask it. As a 26-year-old Baal I'm facing a challenge in, Shidduch, in the Shidduch world. Additionally, my parents who are not uh, observant, insisting that the person I should marry does not have to be extremely observant, quote-unquote. On top of this, many of my friends are getting married, which adds extra pressure. How does one stay positive that Hashem has a bashert for them and a- after seemingly dating, quote-unquote, all suitable matches? It seems that I'm starting to think about this every day, and people have mentioned that I look depressed. Well, no, depression is never an option. Let's make that clear. The Alter Rebbe says that, beginning of Pei Chavov, because once you get depressed, then you, it's going to just become a vicious cycle, will make you feel even worse. And who wants to date someone that's depressed? So you don't want to go that, down that road. I understand it's not so easy to control, not just because, I just, just because I said it's not an option doesn't mean it's not going to affect you. 
what I would suggest is a few things. First of all, it's important to maybe meet some new people on fresh air who can keep you energized and feeling young and full of um, positive anticipation and excitement of your future. Yes, Hashem has a basher for you. You need people to reinforce that and make you feel positive about it. It's difficult at times, especially if the past things haven't worked out and you worked hard and sometimes you want, you feel you met the right person and she doesn't, she rejects you or he rejects you. It's not clear here whether it's a man or a woman. Um, but it goes both ways. That's why it's very important to have very positive thinking friends. They just help inspire you, help keep you up instead of feeling down. That's the first thing. As far as your parents and, and others are getting and other pressure, so to speak, listen, it's part of life. You're going to have to learn to immunize yourself somewhat, insulate yourself from that, knowing what they feel. And 26-year-old, is you have your bright future ahead of you with strong betachen, good friends. And the final point I want to make is a good network. To network further. If things haven't worked so far, don't look at it. I've tried all suitable options, all suitable matches. Meet someone new, go to another Shabbos table. I know it can be very draining, but you want to get married, you want to be happy. Happiness sometimes is a price to pay. Hashem should make it as easy as possible. This is a blessing, the least amount of aggravation. But you write them at us, you have to keep working on it, and then the moment happens. When it happens, you go back and say, ah, it was worth it. So I would suggest broadening your network, finding new suggestions, new options. But, I mean, I'm not saying anything that's rocket science. There's no magic tricks. This is the work. Hashem made it that way. You have to go and seek and search. A man goes out to search. And there's no question that Hashem will, find, will bless you. And there is already a soulmate waiting for you. The question is now to identify that person. If I can be of any further help, please reach out to me. No problem. You could uh, text again, write to us at mychsidasupply.com. Uh, if you, give, you leave your contact information, we can stay in touch. And, uh, or I can introduce you to some other people. And I say this not just to the person who wrote this. This is a, an issue that many are facing, a single life, the dating process finding your bashet, there are many young men and young women, some in their mid-twenties, some a little later, that are struggling with these issues, and we need to be there for them. And I say this not to all of us. People need, need our help. You can't just let them, it's, it's, we're talking about nefashas here, and this is about the future. It's generational. Look at the efforts that Avram Avinu went, made, and he was already an old man, relative Avram Zok and Baba Yomim, to, um, to find the shidduch for his son Yitzchak. And then he found Rivka, Rivka, who in many, many ways emulated Sarah, his wife, and Yitzchok's mother, and that's how he knew she was the right one. So the Pasha teaches us about the importance of keeping on working on it until you find the right shidduch. So God bless you and everybody that needs one that should be the least amount of aggravation. And Bakara, we should dance at your simchas. We should all dance together, only simchas in a revealed way. So I'm going to do a little follow-up and then the chassidus question. Okay, Lottery. Last week I spoke about a lottery. So I have a few follow-ups to this, I think two. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. On your show, you recently discussed whether or not we should be buying lottery tickets. I seem to recall once hearing that the Tzamech Tzadik gave his chassidim permission to buy lottery tickets. If while they bought them, they had in mind a particular tzadok they planned to donate to. Do you know a source for this? Thank you. I have not heard a source. I believe I heard the story. Again, if anyone knows a source, I'm specifically stating here because this is a collective effort and please share it with me for the benefit of others. But going back, yes, there was a story with 1991 that I shared that the Rebbe said to buy one. That would be B'chol Tasa, and God will bless, which leads me to the next question. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I love your Sunday night show and usually agree with your opinions. But on one issue you recently discussed, I respectfully, I respectfully disagree with you. You were dismissive to someone who wrote a letter asking for a bracha to win the lottery and you, were, and you suggested that according to the Tater we don't rely on miracles, shizgulis, lotteries, etc. And there's no such thing as going from rags to riches overnight. That's how you quoted me, not exactly what I said, but let's, put, let's leave it. It's the spirit of what I said. Okay. 
Number one, we were slaves and left Egypt with all their wealth. This is the greatest collective rags to riches overnight story in the Torah. So the precedent is there. Two, on Purim in 1954, the Rebbe said, whomever wants to be wealthy, raise your hand. So this is proof that the Rebbe agreed that at certain times, the energy for brachas for tremendous wealth are available. Number three, once at Dollars, a man named, someone named from, from California, who ran a restaurant that was in debt, asked the Rebbe for a bracha to win the lottery. And the Rebbe gave him a bracha and he bought a ticket and won $5 million. So here we see a case where the Rebbe approved of someone buying a lottery ticket. Lottery ticket. So if you find it appropriate, please recant what you said. And in your capacity as a respected rabbi in the community, give that person a bracha that he should win the lottery and use the money properly and efficiently and promise to give the Meiser money to Zdokid that will help the community. Thank you and keep up the good work with all the amazing online Torah classes you give. Okay, thank you for that. All this I agree with. These are, these are facts that we left Mitzrayim. There are many rags to riches stories. The story of Yosef. Here he was in prison, and then overnight he became a melech. Well, it wasn't overnight, but from rags to riches. And many such stories. So of course Hashem could do that, and, if, and we bless each of us that we should have that all the time. The question is, what should we be doing? We have to make our efforts. I was addressing an issue if someone says, I'm not going to have a job, all I'll do is buy lottery tickets. Or I'll find some other ways, and God should bless me. I want a blessing for that. That was what I was addressing. That's why the Rebbe told the person one ticket. Why didn't he say more than one ticket? That was the question that was asked to me. 20 tickets. Because you made your, your, you made your keli. Now go work. It's not a contradiction. The fact that this person bought a lottery ticket, the Rebbe gave him a bracha, absolutely. And you know, once the Rebbe gave a bracha, you don't need mine, but I'll give a bracha right now. Anyone goes out to a lottery ticket, you have my birch's head yet, the Ebersheh should bless, it should be the winning ticket, and make hundreds of millions of dollars, and make sure to give zdokah, and live a, a beautiful life. Ashiris, wealth is a bracha in, in Teda. The question is, and I wanted to avoid that people feel that they can just rely on that. Ain't same chalalones, you don't rely on miracles. And you don't rely on that being your work is I'm buying lottery tickets every week. Are the chance, can you win one? Yeah, if you hit the jackpot, you win. But you have to also live a life based on Torah to do the cholash atasa in natural ways. Find a job, work, you guide the mitzvah. So I don't see a contradiction or a and but I appreciate the letter, and thank you. In that spirit, people giving... Advice, comments, Rabbi Jacobson, I really like your talks, but I feel like your answers are getting too predictable. Sometimes I guess that you're going, I guess what you're going to say, and I'm often right about the gist of it. That's a good thing, because it means that your way of thinking has become standard. However, if you can mix it up and become a bit more specific and less general, it would be less predictable and more enjoyable. Thanks. Well, I guess this is a compliment and a, and a critique all in one, which I accept perfectly. Yes, at some point, uh, I mean, common sense is not so common, but once people start thinking with common sense, I believe, and I don't want to take the credit, I think all of us have it to some extent, but it becomes so standard, and this has happened more than once I've heard this, that people say, oh, I, I, I already have the answer. I heard it from you years ago, and I haven't assimilated. To me, that's the greatest bracha. It's like I write in the introduction to Toward a Meaningful Life, the greatest compliment is when someone reads your book or reads your writings or hears you speak, and they say to you, ah, this is something I always knew, I just didn't have the words for it, now I can express it. Or I had the words and it just resonates with me. That's a sign of real truth. So I feel honored by this compliment. Okay, I'll try to be a little more <laughs> unpredictable. I can't force it. I'll try to uh, you know, bring new ideas and so on. But, um, but so at the same time, I'm not going to change an approach to something that I uh, either learned from the Rebbe or learned from Chassidus, from experience, that this is an approach. Obviously, I'm not going to do that just for the name of novelty and sensation. So, uh, but at the same time, that doesn't mean we can't always dig deeper and find more, uh, more depth and more approaches and more, uh, more surprises even. Okay, thank you. Finally, Chassidus' question, can you please explain the concept that God recreates the world every moment? Why would it be problematic if God just created the world in the beginning and then just left it to run its course? So, briefly, because of time limits, 
truth is, the Rebbe speaks about this at length in a Chiddush way, in a new way that was never discussed before. In Shayichid Vamuna, the whole Shayichid Vamuna, especially the first chapters, are all about exactly this idea. Hamachadish betuve bechol yem tomid That God renews existence every day, but really it says in my modem every moment. It's perpetual energy, perpetual renewal. Lo'elam Hashem dvarchav nitzah b'shamayim, lo'elam taitzah d'malshemtav, lo'elam means not, lo'elam means constantly, constantly. Why is that? Because the world doesn't have any value and quality of its own. Think of a stone. If you see a stone flying in the sky, you know someone threw it. And at some point the stone is going to fall. If you see the stone continue to fly, that means something is pushing it. Same thing, this world doesn't have any substance of, of its own. A stone is not a flying stone. This world doesn't have any existence of its own. And that's why it needs to constantly be God's breath. God renews every second. Just like me speaking. If I stop speaking, there's no more, there are no words will come out. For the God, it's not just words. A creation is a product of his words, as the Al-Tareb explains at length. So it's really a statement about the rea- what is reality. It's not just whether God... C- is creating every second. It's because there is no substance, no real substance to existence without God's energy. It's about bitla elements. The Rebbe's mechadish, that even though this is a totally logical argument, that, that in Inyan, conceptually, God is kalyachal. He could have invested enough energy for the world to go for 6,000 years, or for how long he wants it. Shabbos Parsha Matas Masay comes to mind, Tov Shin Mem. The Rebbe said it explicitly, other times as well. The Alter Rebbe was mekabel from his rabbeim that that's not the case. The Ebrister did do it every moment. And that's why he explains it that way. But in the Indian, it could have been that way. In one sikha, the Rebbe explains why Taka did he do it that way. So the Rebbe explains because he wanted an ongoing relationship with us. If you were to invest energy and then, so to speak, not have to reinvest, obviously the Ebrister is always with us, we're not talking about that. Then in a way, there's like a renewable connection it's almost like a marriage. We got married, and we stay married, but we don't need to constantly renew it, as the Ragad Shavas Chiddush, the pool and Nimshachas of marriage. So it loses a vitality and the connection. The Abishta wanted us to have every second a new renewed connection. And that creates a, ref- a fresh and, uh, and uh, dynamic relationship every moment. So that's briefly one of the explanations Thank you for the question, especially appropriate the week of Chav Cheshvan, that Rebbe Rashab talks in Tikus Samachalov, Samachalov, and other places, this, these ideas, and as well as others, all based on the Sha'ir Vamun. So, with this, we conclude My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 376. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Everyone have a good Tavoch. Use that Chav Cheshvan to the fullest, and giving Nachas to Rebbe Rashab, all the Rabbeim, bringing Chassidus to life into our personal lives, into the lives of all those around us, and ultimately, which will bring us imar damalke meshiche. Be well. This program is brought to you by My Life, Hasidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at hasidusapplied.com slash donate.